Hey everyone, welcome to On Purpose. My name's Jay Shetty. Thank you for coming back for this Friday episode, this solo episode where I get to dive into a theme that I'm really fascinated by, that I really care about. But this week, I wanted to give you a little surprise. I wanted to do something a little bit different that I think you're going to love. Now, I get invited to speak at a lot of events. I get invited to do a lot of Q&As at private masterminds. And some of these conversations don't get outside of the four walls. And sometimes there's only 10 people in the room, or sometimes there's only 20 people in the room. But recently, I was invited to my friend's mastermind. His name's Chris Harder. Him and his wife, Chris and Laurie, they're amazing. If you don't follow them on Instagram, make sure you go and check them out. They were running a mastermind, and they invited me to share some of my thoughts about life, about purpose, about my journey, about social media. And I thought, why not share this with each and every single one of you? So I asked them if I could. They said yes. And what you're going to get to hear now is a Q&A session with his mastermind. Remember, this was literally like just 20 people in the room. So I can't wait to share this behind the scenes with you. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Remember to make sure to go and share your biggest insights. Tag us for what you're learning on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook or on LinkedIn. And I can't wait for you to respond to this episode. Here we go. Who worked hard to get to where they are and now are gatekeepers or big decision makers. They may never have been given an opportunity to live their passion. They may never had an opportunity to even get their idea through. And so now they're the gatekeepers. So I recently had this crazy experience with my podcast to give you an example. About three months ago, I had the idea of launching a podcast, probably a bit longer, but no, sorry, I take that back. Six months ago now, six, seven months ago, I had the idea of launching a podcast and I knew what I wanted it to be about. And I went around and met every major podcast producer and publisher in LA and New York. And a lot of them were excited with the numbers and all the rest of it. And we got very close to signing a really great deal only for two weeks away from launch for the biggest podcast producer in the space to pull out and say, we don't think this is going to be a big podcast. So in two weeks, we had to launch anyway with whatever we had to get it off the ground. The, the realization I've had from that experience is it's a lot of people who've worked really hard to get to the top and I don't judge them for it, but they've never necessarily taken risks or tried something new or really got to live their passion and then they don't know how to see other people who are trying to do that. So I don't judge them for it. I'm not bitter for it, but that is one of the blocks. And so I think it's so powerful when I'm meeting people, whether it's at networks or TV channels, that are conscious, that are intentional, that are living to make a contribution. And those people are growing and that's happening. And I think we're waiting for those people to rise to the top so that they can be the decision makers and change makers. So that's one of the biggest challenges I think we're facing because the audience has already shown that they want it. That's the beauty of it that I think the people of the world are already saying they want intentional, conscious, purposeful content. That's already been decided. So now it's a matter for the decision makers to change them. And that's only gonna change when we demonstrate our value and don't have to defend it. So when I was in that position where literally, I was two weeks away from podcast launch day, we thought we had this deal all wrapped up, and then it totally crumbled two weeks away. And I was just like, okay, well, what do we do now? And my team was like, Jay, we don't know if we're gonna be able to launch. And I was like, no, we have to launch. We committed to this, we have to make it happen. And so we launched and we now have the number one health podcast in the world. Uh, we've been number five in all categories multiple times. 
and the podcast is always in the non uh, in the top 50 podcasts in all categories so you know the point and the reason is it's not just about the result we could have not made it to any of those stats the point is it's been a really purposeful process for me of building the podcast i love that i love yeah. it um a couple more questions before i turn it over sure. uh you brought up judgment you said i don't judge them but when you're on a mission and somebody doesn't align with your values because we all have different upbringings and paradigms and everything how do you stop yourself from falling into judgment and and for years i suffered uh, as a judger, right? Mm -hmm. Really bad, crippling judgment. And it wasn't until that experience in Costa Rica where I had it flipped on its head and, and you know, you never release anything, but release judgment and was able to catch it and reframe it and, and live a very different life. Mm. So how do you work through judgment? So I think this goes back to the monk training. <laughs> we were lit, uh, one of the biggest mantras we were trained in as monks was don't judge the moment. And we would literally repeat that to ourselves time and time and time and time again. And you'll be shocked to understand if you keep repeating that to yourself, that thing annoys the hell out of you because it stops you from judging. But literally, the first thing that comes to my mind when something doesn't go the way I planned for it to go is don't judge the moment. And it's a simple mantra. It's been life changing for me because so many times we're so quick to label a situation. Like we label a situation as good or bad instantly. If we get some good news, we immediately think, this is amazing. And then that same amazing news in a few months could end up being the worst thing that happened to you. Or, and think about it in your life, right? How many times has that happened in your life? Yeah, anyone ever had that experience? Or it's the other way around, where you label a situation as bad, and a few months later, that's the best thing that happened to you. So when I heard the news that I was working with this amazing brand, I was excited. And then if I was, where I was like, even in good times, my mantra to myself is don't judge the moment. Even in good times. Because what you're doing by labeling something as good or bad is you're not allowing it to evolve into anything meaningful. You're stopping it from becoming anything else. But if you judge the moment as good, then three months later they don't want to do the deal, now it's all bad. Whereas actually when you don't judge the moment, now this was the best thing that ever happened to me. I wrote them an email and said, thank you so much for not signing the deal. Like, thank you so much for telling me I had to do it on my own because now I'm able to do it myself and my confidence is through the roof. So, the way you develop non-judgment is recognizing, and, and I mean this, that each failure has feedback in it. There is feedback, whether you like it or not. If you're getting rejected, if that door's being shut on your face, there's a message there for you, and that message is, try harder, change this, work on this, look at this, look at it from a different angle, do it on your own. And if you take that, see, you have two choices always. You either become bitter or you become better. Right, with any piece of failure or feedback, you become bitter or better. When you become bitter, we all know what that feels like. Nothing good ever comes out of bitterness. Or even if it does, it doesn't feel good. Right, whenever we talk about it, like, even if you've got the most amazing body because you were trying to take revenge on someone, right, and then they don't think your body's all that, and then you get bitter inside and that bitterness just brews. Or you get better, and I think that's been my approach that I've been through so many experiences in life where it looked like everything was going wrong. But as long as I didn't judge that, I allowed it, I gave it the space and the time and the opportunity for it to evolve into something amazing. And so the advice that says, don't judge the moment, recognize that every delay has a blessing, recognize that every pushback has something for you to learn or grow. And if you keep going, you probably will end up with something better. And I think you have to go back to your past experiences 
and note down when that happened to give you confidence when it happens again. So I've been able to track back and be like, that's the karma of my life. The karma of my life is I always get the big people saying no, always. And then I figure out another way to get there. And that's just the karma of my life. Your karma may be different. Your karma may be the big person always says yes. And that's awesome. But we all have a karma and a philosophy code that's underplaying our life. And it's up to you to look back on your past experiences, spot the patterns, and see what your karma is trying to teach you at every different space. Right? So use that as a way of thinking about it. I hope that answers yeah, your question. Oh my God, so good. Two more and then I'll turn it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit. Um, we're talking out there the way that you keep up this extraordinary relationship with your wife. Obviously, it's something that's wildly important to the two of us. We share that ethos. Um, and they were great tips. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could share a little bit, because uh, we have so many uh, entrepreneurs in here that either work with their significant other or they're both working on big projects in separate lanes. What are some of your best practices to have that outstanding relationship with your wife while accomplishing all this? Awesome, thank you. And yeah, I love watching you guys together. When I see you guys out on your workout trips or your runs or whatever it is, I love it. It makes me so happy. And I, and I think we are at that space in culture again where we're celebrating couples. I think for a while it wasn't there. Like I feel like we're not, not just celebrating, but we're talking about it. And I think that's a really important question. So I've been with my wife for six years now. We've been married for three years. And we got married in 2016. Now, I just want to take you back to 2016 to give you context of how it wasn't always like this. So in 2016, I changed job three times. We got married. We moved to New York. We bought a house in London, put it on rent, came to New York and started renting. And don't have any family or friends in New York and never lived in New York. So we did all of that in one year. And I've heard the advice of you know, the toughest things to do in life are moving country, moving home, moving job, and we did all of them in, three, in, the, in the same year, and we did it together. And it was probably one of the hardest years of our life. It was hard for many reasons. One was my wife told me to promise her that we would never live further than one mile radius away from her mum's home in England. And I accepted that when we were dating because I actually loved the area her parents live in and I thought it was a great space because my friends live close by. This is a place called Watford in England. It's like northwest London. It's, it's a beautiful part of the country. And, and so I'd said, and we bought a house one mile radius away from her parents' house. So I was sticking to the promise. And then I got this incredible offer from Ariana Huffington to move to New York and I couldn't say no to it. And my wife didn't talk to me for two days when I got the offer. And when I got the offer and we shared it with her family, there were more tears of sadness than any congratulation. And that's not because her parents don't love me, they're amazing people, but they were losing their baby and, and you know, she's very close to her family. So I was taking her away from something that was really important to her. She didn't love the vibe of New York. It was too noisy, too polluted, too hectic, too, too hustle bustle and all the rest of it. And on top of that, I was out trying to build this new part of my career. So we weren't necessarily spending a lot of time together and she didn't have any friends or family in New York to spend time with either. And so that lasted, and all I was trying to do was set up dates for her with other girls and other people that I knew in New York. Like literally my job, like I had my job, and then my second job was how do I find friends for my wife? And so I would try and set her dates, and then she was like, stop trying to set me on dates with other women or men. And, and so, so I quit doing that. And very, Early, I realized that 
I was only really going to succeed or be happy if we were both winning together. And I think it really hit me early on that I could have this incredible career and things could go really, really well, but if she wasn't happy, then who was I sharing it with? And it wasn't that she wasn't happy for me, she was totally happy for my success, but I wanted her to be happy based on her success and her growth. And I think that's when I realized that only when two complete whole people come together does a relationship work. And it's both of our responsibility to help each other be whole. And she was doing her part for me. She let us move to New York. She was allowing me to give myself and my energy to what I believed in. And I had to start doing the same. So one of the biggest things that happened in our relationship is we started committing to spending three days together every 30 days where it was just us, no phones, no friends, no family. So now every 30 days, we take three days, we run away to somewhere two hours away from LA, from our home in Hollywood, and we just go away. We go to a spa, we go eat good food, we go spend the evenings together, chill and do normal stuff. And that three days of switching off your phone, locking them in the safe in the hotel, and not looking at them from the morning to night, is just incredible. Uh, I made it a big commitment throughout this whole journey to always have breakfast with her and dinner with her five days out of seven days a week. And you may say, well, that may have affected networking or whatever. I just know that if someone really wants to meet me, they'll figure out another time. And if I have to go, then she understands and I'll be able to. But I've really tried to keep that breakfast and dinner time as a time that we can spend together because I think meals are just so powerful to bond over. There's such a beautiful exchange to have. How many people like eating alone? Right? Like, I don't know anyone who actually enjoys eating alone, and when you eat alone, you don't even eat properly. Right? You, you just like, yeah, you're like, right? And you're like browsing through something else or whatever it is. So not only do you wreck your digestion, right? You're wrecking your relationship at the same time. So for me, those are a few quick things that I can share, and we can dive into that more if it's of interest. That's cool. I have so many questions, but I'm going to go with this one uh, because it seems like there's so many transitions in your life from growing up in London with an Indian family to going to school to being a mom. What was the, I'll say two parts, what was the hardest thing about those transitions um, going from one side to the other, back, maybe back to the other side now? In business and entrepreneurship, and then what was one of the most like significantly awesome things on the flip side of it, uh, that we realized like everything led to that point? Yeah, awesome, great question. Thank you. I think we've all experienced this in any transition. If you're doing something risky or you're doing something that no one else does, like I don't know anyone growing up who decided to become a monk, right? Like no one else apart from me and the people I lived with. And when I decided to do that, my extended family thought I was crazy or brainwashed. And they were just like, to my parents, they were like, you've lost your son. Like, he's gone. Like, he's never coming back. My friends thought I was absolutely crazy. I remember so many of my friends stopped talking to me because they felt that they had nothing in common with me now just because I decided to become a monk. I was getting all of these questions to figure out why I was doing it. So no one really agreed with me. It was against the grain. And people were like, Jay, you realize you're never going to get a job again. Like, you're never going to be able to make money ever again in your life. Like, who wants to hire a monk, right? If your resume says monk, who's going to give you a job, right? Literally, those are the kind of things that I was hearing. And so the tough thing about tra that transition was, I was 22 years old. All my friends were going off to start incredible careers, 
at incredible companies or travel the world or start a new business and I was doing something that externally had zero value in the world. Right? Becoming a monk has zero value in the modern world. Genuinely, it, it counts for nothing. And when all my friends were doing things that were seen as valuable, whether it was going to work for Google or going to work for Morgan Stanley or whatever it was, I was deciding to go the other way. So the toughest thing about that transition was I had to really have faith in what I was doing and I had to really believe in it. And I had to really convince myself that what I was doing was worth it. And I remember that took me four years to do. So from the moment I met the monk at 18 to the moment I actually became a monk at 22, those four years were convincing my mind that I was doing something worthwhile and meaningful. And it took four years. So when I did it at 22, it was easy. And when I actually left to go to India, that was easy because I'd spent four years experimenting, testing, learning, and seeing what the lifestyle was like. See, if you just want to go off and become a monk without doing the training, you won't. And similarly, masterminds like this, it's like you're getting to do the learning, the testing together, the experimenting, you're getting to learn from people who've done it before. If I hadn't spent those four years living at the monastery in India, I wouldn't have known if I could do it. So that was that transition. The most fulfilling transition and the hardest one was actually leaving the monastery and coming back. Oh, wow. That was the hardest because I had to put into practice everything I learned. So it was almost like that was the education and this was the exam. And I genuinely feel that my conviction for what I learned as a monk has grown massively because I got to take part in the exam. And so when you're getting tested, when you have exams facing you, that's the best time to put into practice everything you've learned. And I genuinely feel if I didn't leave being a monk, I wouldn't be as convinced I am about what I learned. Because practicing it away from the world, in one sense, is simpler than coming back to the world and having to bring it with me and having to reintegrate into the world, having to rewire my beliefs around money, work, business, life, all of that. And so for me, that was the toughest and hardest, but also the most fulfilling, that I've actually seen every principle I learned living as a monk has held true because I've tested every single one of them since I came back. And I owe all, anything that I've achieved, all my success to all my monk training. Like that's what it all goes back to. None of it is me or who I was or any of that. It comes back to those three years that I got to spend in deep meditation, deep prayer, intention seeking, intention refining, and, and becoming rather than doing and having. Right, that's where it started for me. Amazing, good question, John. Thanks bro, yeah. Thank you, man, great question. Next question, Sandy. Hey, Sandy. Hi, Jay. Hey. Uh, my name is Sandy. I'm from New York, and I am grateful to each and every one of you and just your presence um, allowing me to be vulnerable and share my truth uh, earlier today. So my question for you is, I feel like as an entrepreneur, we're so invested in the doing this. That definitely came up a lot in the room today. And we have so many decisions to make on a daily basis. And I feel like the number one most powerful re-source that we all have is our intuition. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you tap into your own intuition to make decisions in your business that lead to your highest good? Yeah, I love that. What a great question. And I completely agree with you. So I love intuition. How many of you believe that you've been listening to your intuition since you were young? Awesome. How many of you started to feel like you only started listening to your intuition in the last three to five years? How many of you don't put up your hand no matter what I say? <laughs> 
Awesome. Uh, thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. Uh, but the reason why I ask is, I genuinely believe the quicker you start listening to intuition, the stronger it gets. And so for those of you who have listened to intuition since you were young, hopefully that voice is really loud in your head or your heart or wherever you believe your intuition is. For me, that voice is so strong because I started following it when I was 14 years old. And I started hearing it and listening to it and not compromising on it and fighting for it at all times. My intuition told me to become a monk. My intuition told me to leave being a monk. My intuition told me to try and work in media in the space I'm in now. And even now, I have to constantly remind myself to not get carried away with stakeholders, managers, agents, advisors, mentors, and also go back in. So how do you do that? One of my favorite ways to do that is anytime I have options or decisions in my life, I write them all out, and above them, I write the intention for why I would do it. So let's say I've got three different business partners to work with, or let's say I've got three different business investments I could make. I write down why I would do that. Often when I really ask myself, why would I do something? It's because of ego or pride. It's gonna make me feel great for my ego, right? It's gonna make me feel really powerful. If I'm an investor in that, that's gonna make me look so cool. If I partner with that person, it makes me look better. And then I see that and I'm like, okay, I, I observe that. And then I ask myself, okay, why am I doing this one? And then the answer might be money. I'm just gonna cash out, like I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna make a lot of money. It's, it's gonna, you know, put a ton of money in my back pocket. It's gonna make me feel great from that perspective. And I'll keep going until I find the option that has the word love on top of it. When I can truly say, that I'm making a decision primarily based on love. Of course, I need it to pay the bills and I need it to feel good. But when I can truly say that that is primarily based on love and it's primarily based on my purpose, then I know that that's being guided by my intuition. And of course, I attain that through my meditation every day. I meditate for two hours every morning. And as part of that meditation, when I'm getting into that stillness, what I'm trying to do is clear the clutter of the noise of people's expectations, obligations, and opinions, and make room for my voice, of my intuition, my intention, and what my soul's really yearning for. But that practical exercise of actually putting these things above them makes it really like visual for me, and I'm a visual person, I love seeing things. And of course, there have been times in my life where I've had to do the thing that just had money on top of it, but at least I did it intentionally. I wasn't just doing it thinking this is my purpose, I was really honest. Okay, I really need to pay the bills right now. I'm doing this, it pays the bills, I've got to do it. That was where I was at. But then I'm always trying to upgrade from that. And I don't want to, I want to stop going to the ego level. Just want to stop playing at that level. Because the ego level just lets you down every time and never quite becomes amazing. So, so many times I've had to say no in my life because intuitively it didn't feel like love. Because remember, if you don't follow your intuition, you'll say yes to everything that sounds good too. Yeah. So you end up overworking, overcommitting, and overcompensating. But when you live with your intuition, life actually becomes simpler because it's clearer who you want to invest in and why. And sometimes that thing may become, I mean, I know that a few actors talk about this when they gave up big roles in movies. When people didn't realize The Matrix was going to be a big thing, they turned down the role and then Keanu Reeves obviously played it and he was amazing. But a lot of actors have said, Keanu played it better than I would have. So even if that went on to become the most successful thing in the world, if you have that honest reflection, you recognize that was someone else's opportunity. I've got mine. And that's what your intuition does. It drives you to yours without thinking you need someone else's. So hopefully that answers your question. That's so beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much.
Who's next? Thank you. Hey, Jay. Hey. Uh, my name is Scott from Philadelphia. Hey, Scott. There's so much I want to say. Um, awesome. So, first, say it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just grateful for obviously this mastermind and, and, and Chris for putting this together. And, you know, just thankful for you, Jay, for, for everything that you do. Seriously, I, I've been following you for a couple of years now, and uh, this is kind of like one of those surreal moments having conversations with someone from watching. Um, so, two things. Number one, in, in something that you spoke about before, it was a podcast or an interview, you talked about the science of the physiological state of teaming gratitude and how it's impossible to feel any other emotion when you're feeling gratitude and practicing in the morning and at night. So one, speak on how gratitude has really helped you. And number two, so much has changed for you in the last 36 months, you know, when you put yourself out there. What has been the biggest lesson that you've learned in stepping into this new role that you're in? Because, you know, behind closed doors, all the things you were doing, but being in the, in the limelight, quote unquote, being very visible for so many people, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from all this? Sure, man. And thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Uh, gratitude, yeah. I mean, we hear about it all the time. It was a huge monk practice that we focused on. And when I talk about gratitude in that sense, it's not just making a list of three things you're grateful for. The way we were trained in it was you have to embody the feeling of gratitude. The best way to do that is when you visualize and take yourself back to a moment you experience something that you're deeply grateful for. So you literally wanna transport yourself back to that moment. You wanna feel what it sounded like, what you could smell, what you could see. You wanna immerse yourself in that experience where you felt extremely grateful, whatever it was, whether it was an embrace from the person you love, whether it was being able to see what you had based on the perspective of serving other people, whatever it was, any experience that made you feel really grateful, when you embody that experience, when you re-embody that experience, you can't then be in stress, pain, pressure, ego, or any other state. Because gratitude is such a powerful emotion that it completely drenches you and soaks you in that emotion and in that feeling. So when you are trying to be grateful, don't just go for the, I'm grateful for the air, I'm grateful for the sunny weather, I'm grateful. Don't just do that, really embody that experience. Gratitude for what you wouldn't expect yourself to be grateful for. Because somehow that brought you here. Like somehow, whatever it was that wasn't nice, that was painful, it got you here. And when you can be grateful about that, you're rewiring your mind to start being grateful for every situation because it was a part of your story. Right? It was a part of your story that made your story better. Your story would be boring if you just succeeded all the time. Imagine sitting up on a stage and being like, yeah, so I went on from this success to this success to this success. It would be the most boring story in the world. No one would care or relate to it. Uh, in terms of the second part of your question, right? like never get carried away with all the new opportunities and the new things that come up and forget why you started because why you started was why everything happened in the first place. And I think the further away you get from the reason you started, the harder and harder and harder it becomes because you start measuring it on new metrics. See, when I started, I thought I was gonna be someone who worked a full-time job and made videos in my evenings and weekends to hopefully help a few people. That's the scope of my vision when I started. But the goal was always to help a few people. The goal wasn't to have a brand or a business or any of that. And so when my goal is still now to help people, 
and I'm still reminding myself, that's ultimately the whole point of all of this, because when I die, that's the only thing I'm gonna measure myself against. I don't think when I die, I'm gonna be able to say, I'm so glad I partnered with that brand. Like, I'm not gonna say that, right? Like, when I die, I'm not gonna be sitting there going, oh, I'm so glad that I had a really nice apartment and car. Like, I'm not gonna think that. Of course, I like having a nice apartment and a nice car. I'm not saying don't have one. I'm just saying that's not gonna be the metric that I'm gonna measure myself by when I'm dying. When I'm dying, I'm gonna be measure myself by how did I impact people, how did I affect people, what did people get from me, and how did I serve, right? How did I give everything I was given? And so for me, it's reminding myself never to go far away from that. There have been so many times where I've been so close to just forgetting that, and then thankfully, like, my memories come back in and it's reeled me back. And so I want to be around more people who remind me of that. And I want to be around people who remind me of the importance of that and keep taking me back to that. And the other thing that I've learned is don't measure yourself just based on the room you're in. So what I mean by that is if you're always measuring yourself based on everyone you're around, you're gonna think you're not good at anything. So if you're in a room full of investors, you're gonna be like, oh crap, I need to invest more. If you're in a room full of monks, you're gonna be like, I need to meditate more. That's probably gonna help them. Uh, if you're in a room full of uh, CEOs, you're gonna be like, oh my God, I need to start a company. And so many of us sit in so many different rooms now where the pressure isn't internal, it's external. If you're finding an internal drive that makes you wanna be something, that's amazing. But if all of your drive and pressure is external because of just who you're around, it can negatively take you away from your gift. And that's what I've realized, that you've got to stick to your gift. You've got a gift, play to that gift, play to that strength, give that gift away. Don't start thinking you need all these other gifts. You may evolve into them, you may dabble in them, but remember that you have a gift that people are looking for. And that gift is the one that if you keep nurturing that and nourishing that and giving that away, you're always going to have a place you're always gonna have a reason to be alive. You're always gonna have a purpose. And so, yeah, go, focus on your gifts and, and grow those gifts because they're there for a reason. So hopefully that covers what you wanted. Thank you, man. Thanks, Scott. Hi, my name's Jonathan. Uh, hey, Jonathan. Here in LA. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you, I think, for So my question kind of goes back to your marriage, you and your wife. Um, so my wife and I, we've been together 17 years, married eight years. We kind of have always moved along the same path, but over the past five years or so, my career or whatever has really taken off and she hasn't, so there's kind of been a struggle of she's happy for me, but she's not satisfied with kind of what she's doing. How did you and your wife enjoy that and what advice can you yeah, absolutely. Well, you've got a lot more relationship experience than I do, so I'll come and ask you some questions afterwards. But uh, I think this is the beauty of relationships that last, right? Like, no one's ever going to accelerate at the same pace. We don't accelerate at the same pace as our parents. We don't accelerate at the same pace as our family. We don't accelerate at the same pace as our friends. We don't accelerate at the same pace as our partners. And that's normal. Like, that's just life. So the fact that we experienced that in the first place is recognizing that that's natural. And the second step is you trying to facilitate the journey for her, but at her own pace. And that journey is not going to look at the same as yours. It's not even gonna look marginally like yours maybe. But if you can support and be there for her while she figures it out, 
you don't have to figure it out for her. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we make in relationships where we try to figure everything out for the other person. Like I was setting my wife up on dates. But it's like, I can't figure it out for her, but I have to be there for her while she figures it out. Right? You can't figure it out for her, but you have to be there for her while she figures it out. And when she sees that and you facilitate that growth and you help her with that, you're gonna naturally see she's gonna get there in her own time. But if you start putting your deadlines on her life, that's not gonna work. If you start putting your timelines on her life, that's not gonna work. And I don't think you come across as a really nice, patient, wonderful human being from the two seconds that I've been with you. But, but the point I'm making is that you sound like someone who, you sound like you love her. And I think that's how you display love in this moment. The way you display love in this moment is patience. The way you display love in this moment is facilitating. The way you display love in this moment is being there for her through that transition. And I think it is important that you think about who you can introduce her to, which communities can she become a part of to help her think that way. But always help her recognize that you want to amplify who she is and it's not about her becoming who you are. So I'll give you an example. My wife is the most genuine, authentic person I've ever met. Like she's so genuine, she's so authentic, she's so loving, she doesn't have a bad bone in her body, like she's literally one of the sweetest people I know. She will never gossip about people, she doesn't have anything negative to say about people. And whenever people meet her, they're like, oh my God, how have you not launched her brand? How have you not turned her into a YouTuber? And I'm like, first of all, that's not why I married my wife. Second of all, she doesn't want that at this stage in her life. She's happy sharing her talents with our family, friends, and people we love. The day she's ready to share them with the world, of course I'll help her. But I'm not gonna force her to become someone she doesn't wanna be. And so maybe your wife's fulfillment isn't even career. It could be something totally different. And I think we as facilitators, as observers, whether it's your husband or your wife, it could be any situation, just have to allow that person to grow. It's like letting a plant or a flower grow at their own pace. And you want to water it and nurture it and give it the sun, but you can't expedite it or decide where it's going. So it may not be career. Be open to it, introduce it to a number of people, get it to start talking to different communities, because you'll see, and then it's your job to observe what excites her, like what really like brought her to life. And when you see that, then you can help that further. So that would be my advice. You can't figure it out for her. You have to be there for her while she figures it out. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, right. Hey, Jay, uh, we met in, uh, at Lewis House. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was awesome. Great to see you, man. Good to see you. Uh, it, uh, I'm grateful for everybody in this room. The, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to forget my question. Did you guys buy it? I don't want to forget my question. Do you ever battle with presence? Because you have a lot of things going on, right? But you seem so present. I've read like The Power now like 12 times. It doesn't take. How do you, how do you remain so present? Do you have any tips, tricks, or strategies to help with that? The challenge we have is that we think there are some times we want to be present and there are times we don't want to be present. You only have one choice. You're either present or not. So we say things like, I've got this event tonight. I'm gonna to be present at that event. 
but right now I'm with my wife or I'm with my family or whatever and I'm not gonna be present right now. Guess what happens? That mindset bleeds into everything else. If you're not where you are right now, you'll never be where you want to be later. It's just not possible. And so for me, one of the biggest tips and tricks is, no matter if you're in a space that you don't like being in, you're not enjoying it, still be there. Don't try to mentally escape, because that mental escape bleeds into every other area of your life. So even if I'm in a place where I know I've got a million things to do tomorrow, I'm pushing myself to be present now because that will mean I'll be present tomorrow. So even if I've got the biggest pitch meeting in the world tomorrow, I can be sitting here right now answering a question, thinking about that. I don't have a pitch meeting, by the way. But even if I did, I know that if I'm fully present now, I'll be fully present then. So, so it's almost like you're training yourself. Training yourself. You're training yourself when you don't want to be present. What we're trying to do is train ourselves when we want to be present. So we're waiting for a moment. We're like, I really want to be present in this. How do I become present? Become present when you don't want to be present. And then it will naturally bleed over. Does that help? It's awesome. Thank you. Hey, man. I'm Josh. Hey, Josh. Um, I'm really grateful for being introduced to you. Um, I'm, I'm probably a minority member. I, I didn't know much about you until uh, Friday at dinner with Chris last week, where he told me that we were going to meet one of his favorite human beings in the world. Excuse me. And uh, that's a testament to our relationship, too. Chris and our relationship, because when he said that, I, I took it real seriously. Like, I gotta meet this guy. And it didn't take more than 30 seconds of you talking for me to be like, I love the vibe. I love your vibe. Thank you, um, So that's amazing, the, the monk training. And um, you, you did it for three years. Mm -hmm. So I imagine you learned a lot about meditation and presence and really getting to listen, you know, just go inward. What would you recommend for people who aren't, you know, aren't probably going to get the chance to do the monk training mm -hmm. um, for how we could... You know, what, what practices or, or maybe resources would you point us to for us to kind of, I don't know, next best thing, right? Yeah, to, sure. to achieve that without formal monk training. Absolutely. So, the world that we live in has tried to commoditize and simplify everything, and there are advantages to that. But when you hear things like, just meditate for 10 minutes a day and your life's gonna change, just meditate for five minutes a day and your life's gonna change. Just meditate for 10 minutes twice a day and everything's gonna figure itself out. The good in that is that it starts the habit. The challenge in that is that you've never had an immersive experience to be convinced of the benefits. I'll give you an example. Imagine I tell you I want you to figure out whether you love this person and I tell you you can only spend 10 minutes a day with them every day. How long are you, is it going to take you to figure out whether you love that person or not and want to spend the rest of your life with them? It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. But if you went away with someone for a day, a weekend, a week, that immersive experience is going to help you learn so much more about them that you can make a better decision. So my advice to anyone who has the facility, has the opportunity, is take a day, take a weekend, or a week and go on an immersive meditation experience. Why? Because it will completely win you over with the benefits because you'll actually experience something. When you meditate for 10 minutes a day, all you experience is you might switch off the noise. Just maybe. When you meditate every day for a week or a weekend, you're gonna feel the experience and when you come back to your normal life, you're gonna be like, 
I know what it feels like, so I know what to get back to. The problem with meditation right now is you don't know what you want to feel or experience because all you're feeling in 10 minutes is just, come on, why doesn't this work? <laughs> right, like, why isn't this working? Why am I stressed out? Oh my God, my back itches, right? Like my eyebrow itches now, right? Now my leg hurts. Am I doing it right? And then you're like, am I doing it right mode? When you go on a retreat and you do it for an hour, you get to work through all that, which it takes around, to me, even right now, it takes me probably, realistically, after having done, I've done two hours a day for the last 13 years of my life. And it takes me now, 10 minutes to zone in, right? I can zone in, I can zone in quicker, but if I'm honest and I've had a busy day and meetings and all the rest of it, it still takes me 10 minutes to zone in. And that used to take me an hour, and that used to take me 30 minutes, and now I've been able to cut it down. Because no one can just go from this to nothing, right? Like, I've got, so my advice to you is go have an immersive experience. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Hi, Jay. Hey. Uh, Bryce from Denver. I'm thankful for everyone in this room. And uh, yeah, everyone's helping a lot in this room. So I appreciate that very much. Um, I've heard you mention putting your phone away <laughs> numerous times today. Yeah. And I'm curious if you can dive deeper into that and if there's benefits or, or anything beyond you know, just saying put your phone away that you've experienced and, and what's that done for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I used to be one of those people that loved watching movies late at night. So I'd finish everything, get into bed. This is uh, quite a few years ago. And I would sit there and I'd watch a movie and it'd probably be something like motivational, like Rocky or something like that. And I'd get into it and then it would finish late. It'd be 1 a.m. and then I'd go to sleep and wake up the next day. I started to practice very early on before I became a monk to sleep without my devices next to me. And so at one point what I had to do is I would lock my phone and my laptop in my car outside. Because if I didn't do that, if I left it downstairs, I'd be sitting in bed and be like, oh, it's just downstairs, I can go and get it. But right, if I'm in bed and then my car's outside and it's cold, not here, but in London it's cold, and then it's locked outside, you might have to lock it in your friend's house or you leave it at the office. But the beauty that that gave me was one of the biggest things we do to our brain, which is such a big mistake, is we try it. How many, I mean, Chris will know about this because I know Chris loves cars and I, I like Chris's cars too. Chris, what's the quickest a car can go from zero to X miles per hour? Like, give me a range. Like zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. Okay, zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. How many cars can do that? Maybe five to six of them. Okay, five to six car brands. How many car brands are there in general? I, I mean, models and thousands. Okay, so we didn't prepare this, obviously. But Chris is, I believe Chris is a car expert to some degree from his Instagram, or I can tell. <laughs> so there are, there are thousands of car models out there. Five to six car models, roughly, of course, can get from zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. When you wake up and the first thing you do is look at your phone, you're trying to be those five or six cars. You're trying to get your brain and your mind to go from zero of sleep to 60 miles per hour in two and a half seconds because you've got 30 notifications, 50 emails, 60 WhatsApp messages, and whatever else you have going on. The biggest mistake we're doing is we're actually reducing our mind and brain's ability to make better decisions, to be able to be more focused because we're wasting it all on that first two and a half seconds. 
How many of us can physically get out of bed and go run a marathon? None of you would choose to do that. You wouldn't choose to, in two and a half seconds, wake up and go run a marathon. You wouldn't do that. And if you did, you've trained yourself over a lot of time. And so don't do that with your mind. When you wake up in the morning, how many of you would love 100 people to walk through your bedroom door and greet you? You'd be like, no, I wanna get ready first. I might wanna put my makeup on, I wanna do my hair. That's the same with your mind. You haven't let your mind sort itself out. And you're letting 100 people walk into your mind, the bedroom of your mind, the moment you wake up. What that's doing is that it's slowing down your focus, it's reducing your decision-making ability and increasing something known as decision fatigue. If you're making lots of small, insignificant decisions from the moment you wake up, like which email do I want to look at and which cat picture have I been sent, and you're doing that at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., whenever you wake up in the morning, then you're making that decision at 9 and 10 a.m. much harder. So for me, putting your phone away is about letting your mind, giving it the time to wake up and so when I talk about waking up early, actually what that means is waking up one to two hours before your day actually starts. That's what waking up early truly means. Waking up early means waking up one to two hours earlier or three hours before your day starts. So my life runs like this. I wake up around 6 a.m. every day. As a monk, we used to wake up at 4 a.m. It's crazy, I can't do it anymore. But the point is that I've used all my gaps for social media or I have my work time for being on my phone. But when I'm with people, so we made a rule in our home that we don't use our phones in, at the dining table or in the bedroom because it's more fun to eat and sleep with people, right? <laughs> like those are no technology zones in the home. No technology times and no technology zones in your home make it practical to have barriers and boundaries. So if I walk into my bedroom with my phone, my wife sees me, she'll be like, leave it outside, right? And it's great. It's like, it forces you, and when you set those barriers and boundaries together, you can hold each other to it. Which means if I wanna use my phone, I can hang out in the lounge and use it till later if I need to, but I'm just not gonna bring it into that space because that space is for something else. And this is our challenge. We do everything in the same spaces, and so that space loses what it's actually for. That's why we can't sleep in our bedrooms, because we eat and work in them. That's why we can't eat properly in our dining tables, because we work at them. The more you do at more different places, the less you can actually achieve the goal of that space. And our phones have made that the hardest thing in the world. So I often say to people, time has memory, location has energy. When you do something at the same time every day, it becomes easier. When you do something in the same space every day, it becomes more natural. So that's why you don't want to take your phone everywhere and anywhere because it depletes your ability to achieve that space or time in what you're trying to achieve. Does that help with the no phone thing? Yeah? Awesome. Thanks, man. Hey, man. I'm Chris from Indiana, now California, as of a week ago. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I only moved here a year ago, too, so I'm a newbie. So you kind of get it. I still don't get it. I love it. I love it. I'm not going anywhere. I love it here. It's amazing. Grateful. I'm grateful. Every time I'm around Chris, I'm more aware of what's possible. And today I feel like I know building a business is possible coming from love, coming from mm -hmm. wisdom, coming from generosity, and really odd places that I feel like the rest of the world tells us that's not where you want to build your business from. Mm -hmm. And 
what I, if you don't mind, what I want you to speak about is as you get started in coaching, because I'm, I'm a life and business coach for business owners, I, I'd love for you to talk about how you got into coaching or consulting or whatever version you want to mm-hmm. describe it as. Yep. How people you know, more and more come to coaches, and I'm looking at everybody who's in fitness or any other industry, wanting strategy, wanting marketing, wanting how do I build a funnel, how do I get more clients and the technical side of things without leading from their heart. Mm-hmm. And invariably, every client I get, we spend 70-80% of the time on love, wisdom, generosity, fulfillment, happiness, freedom. So how did you, over what, almost 10 years I guess, move people from feeling like what you want to what you need mm-hmm. and building a business around that? Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, man. And, and I'm so glad that we're in an environment that's encouraging the right messages and the right principles, thanks to Chris and Laurie and all of you incredible people. And it's just, this is actually rare to be a part of. I get to go to a lot of internet marketing conferences and sales conferences and funnel conferences, and I get invited to speak at all of them about social media. And I start each, class, uh, each of those sessions whenever I'm speaking or keynoting at these places by saying, I did not start using social media to build a brand or a business, so I'm gonna talk about the heart of why I built what I built, and then I kind of leave strategies to the end. Uh, And I love being able to do that because I truly believe that we're setting people up for success but not happiness. And so whenever I've worked with anyone, I've always asked them, do you wanna be successful? Or do you wanna be happy? Or do you wanna be both? Because they are different things. And I look at success as being all the external stuff, the awards, the money, the followers, the stuff. And I look at happiness as how I feel about myself while I go through that process. So the definition of happiness to me is how I feel about myself when I'm by myself. When I'm not around all that stuff, when I'm not around those numbers, those followers, how do I feel on an average day? Because we all know we can have a terrible day sitting in our whatever car we drive, right? You can still have a terrible day. So for me, I always differentiate that with everyone I work with. What's your goal here? Is it happiness or success or is it both? Most people say both, but they don't really mean it. They're saying both, they're kind of like, yeah, I know I'm gonna feel better about myself when I have that car and have that money. And I'm like, no, you're not, right? Like, that's just not true. There's a reason Jim Carrey said that everyone should go out and do everything they possibly wanted because just to realize that it's not the point, right? The fact that Jim Carrey said that says it all. And so for me, my approach to that is explaining to people And this again comes back from, this is in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the book I studied as a monk, and it talks about the modes. And the three modes can be categorized into having, doing, and being. And this is a a 5,000 year old text that speaks about this. And it talks about how you can either be in three modes, the mode of goodness, passion, or ignorance. The mode of passion is you're doing so that you can have, and then you think about being later. The mode of ignorance is you just want to have and you don't really think about doing or being anything. And goodness is when you realize that when you be or become the right thing and then do things from that place, you will naturally have. So my focus is always to pull people back from the doing to the being. So if you look at the habits, why do we talk about the habits of millionaires? The habits of millionaires are not what they do, that's what they become. It's like they are people who are being kind, who are being disciplined. You don't do disciplined, you be disciplined. Right? You become disciplined, you become focused. You don't do focus, you do stuff by being focused. 
And when people start to realize that you've got to go that step back into becoming and being, not only to get, but hold on to stuff. And I always say that to people. Do you want to get stuff or do you want to keep it? Because that's going to be a big difference in your life. And so for me, I believe as coaches, it's our role to remind people of this deeper intention and why it's important. Because I think people are just misled. It's not their fault. This is not an attack on everyone who wants money and stuff. Not at all. Not at all. Right? That's not what it is at all. But it's our importance to make people realize a step deeper to that. So I'm not against anyone chasing the goals of their business numbers at all. I think it's amazing. I have the same. But I know why I'm doing it. I know what I need to become to do that properly. Otherwise, that doing is going to burn you out. And that's where people usually end up, is that in order to have, we end up doing things in a way that it burns us out. And then we lose everything, right? We lose ourselves. And I love the fact that so many more thinkers, entrepreneurs are now speaking about this. Like, Jeff Bezos gets eight hours of sleep a night. Right? Like, I'm like, okay, none of us have an excuse. And he didn't just do that now. He's been doing that the whole time. Right? He's not saying, I just did that now, now that I'm the first trillionaire in the world, or whatever it is. He's been doing that since day one. And that's what's beautiful about it, that if he can find eight hours of sleep, so can we. Right? So hopefully that helps paint a picture of the responsibility you're taking. And being able to create a new community of fellow business owners. So my question is pretty much asking for advice. I am an attorney and I work with a lot of clients who I work with them when they're very emotional because something has happened to their business and they need help. And a lot of times I I have a hard time speaking to them in a way that motivates them to really take a step back and calm, number one, calm them down, but number two, to really help them realize that there's a bigger picture here. It's, this isn't the end of the world. There's more more to it. So I, I guess I'm really just ask, looking for advice on how to communicate that to clients when they're so emotional as it is. When they come to me, they're very emotional. I'm gonna tell you the first thing that comes to my mind, and that is I would outsource it. <laughs> I would have someone else in the room who's an incredible coach who's good at dealing with emotions come in and play that role for you because they're naturally trained to do that and then you get to play to your strengths, right? It's like, the reason why, and I'm starting then, I'll, I'll give some advice of what you can do too, but I do really believe in, you're an attorney, you've got certain things you need to understand, certain questions you need to answer and certain strengths you need to play to. And actually, if you get lost in both roles, you could find yourself very quickly becoming a therapist and an attorney. And that's gonna probably be quite draining or strenuous. I can see that becoming quite challenging very quickly because no one can play two roles at the same time for one person and it can actually become a big burden that you're now carrying on your shoulders. So the first advice I have is for emotional clients, I would have someone who's a partner that you have a relationship with, that, that is a partnership with your company or your brand or whatever it may be, that can actually come in and provide that more emotional support, coaching, therapy, whatever that client needs. Because as much as I'd love to say I, I can't wait for you to grow those skills, I just feel like playing two hats at the same time is just a hard game to play. It's really, really tough. And this is why 
I think it's so important when people just, yeah, play to your strengths, play to what you've already got. Now, if you're saying to me, Jay, I, I would love to do that. I, I don't know if you think that sounds like a good idea or a terrible idea. Good or terrible? I think it's a great idea. I just find it hard to, when they come to me personally, sure. to tell them, sorry, I'm, you know, here's so and so. Sure. So I think you can do the in between. You have got to do the nice Passover to the person. So you've got to understand their emotions and feelings, but you've got to recognize that someone else can help them deeper. And that's the beauty of it, that your, your connection with this person has to become a factor of, obviously you understand it, and I'm sure you see it a lot, but that you care about them so much that you're gonna introduce them to someone who actually understands them, who can actually help them heal the emotional so that you can focus on the legal, right? So that you can focus on whatever it may be. Yeah, thank uh, you for that. I hope that helps. Hi, Jay, I'm, I'm Kareen. Hey. Great to meet you. Nice I to meet you. I saw you on the Red Table Talk. Yes, awesome. oh, thank you. Yeah, um, so I'm grateful, obviously. I love breaking bread with my family. I mean. We're family here, and it's, it's an awesome energy because I love what you said about how you lock it away so that at the table, in the bedroom, like it's, it's human. And so I work with a lot of corporate executives, and I know you do too. What are your methods on bringing that conscious leadership or conscious decision making into every room? that you walk into, but also how to bring it out of them. One of the things I set up for them was Mindfulness Mondays. So I would encourage that every managing director would either learn or had someone on their team learn how to lead a mindfulness exercise at the start of every meeting on a Monday. So they had to dedicate three minutes to something I coached them in to lead that three minute mindfulness exercise at the beginning of each meeting. And people thought it would make them less productive and they saw their productivity and effectiveness shoot through the roof. Why? Because half the time when we walk into a new room, we're bringing the baggage of the old room. And as people know in corporate companies, all you're doing is walking from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting and not getting time to do work. And so people are just bringing their baggage from meeting to meeting, from room to room to room. And when you did that mindfulness exercise, they were able to drop that baggage and actually focus on the task at hand. I think the other way of doing it, regardless of making it a specific mindfulness exercise, is start getting everyone to be much more intentional and conscious about the goal of every meeting they walk into. And this is one of the biggest mistakes I saw in the corporate world, that even when we walk into a room, we are so unaware of what our intention is. We're so unaware. You can turn up at events, meetings, dinners, and lunches every single day and not know why you're even there or what you want from it. And if you just took three minutes before you turned up to ask yourself, what's gonna be, how am I gonna view this meeting as a success? How am I gonna view walking into this room as a success? What is it gonna be for me that makes me feel like this was going in the right direction? And that's helping them become mindful without telling them to practice mindfulness. Helping them to become more intentional and conscious about why they're in those meetings, what they want from them, how they view them as success, is giving them a bird's eye view of what they're doing. And the third and final thing I'd say is helping them recognize that when they're this way, that's gonna reap incredible benefits from the people that work with them. And I think that's what most leaders underestimate. 
that when you're more conscious and intentional, the people around you are forced to become more conscious and intentional. Hence, you raise the vibration of everyone. And so I think they need to be exposed to other conscious leaders. They need to come into environments like this. They need to meet people like yourself and people like Chris and, other, and Laurie and other people who are living like that with employees, with staff, with teams to notice how when a conscious leader is operating on that level, people are raising their levels too. Right, so those are just a few ideas. I'm sure we could talk about this for hours. But uh, those are a few quick ideas that came to mind. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so let's do one uh, last question. David here. Hey, David. Hi, how are you guys, how are you guys doing? Good. So I'm thankful for Chris Harder, uh, my good friend, for putting this together. I wasn't going to ask a question, although I'm very impressed by you and what you do and what you say. I relate to it a lot. So I'm going to ask kind of a fun question. Um, you spoke a lot about um, seeing education and entertainment in, in conjunction with each other. Um, I like it because I teach it. I'm a big believer in teaching with pop culture because that's what people relate to. Their, the libraries in their mind relate to music, uh, movies, and television. So I'm going to ask you a fun question. Of all the characters you know, fictional characters, in movies, television, whether it be on uh, TV or cable, who do you most associate yourself with? Oh. oh, I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track back while I give some more perspective to this because I love mainstream culture too and I love entertainment too and love what you're doing seeing as what I've just found out. So my favorite, I'd, I'm going to start with my favorite director because I think it's so important. My favorite director in the world is Christopher Nolan. So for Christopher Nolan, for those of you who don't know what he made, he made Memento, The Prestige, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Inception and Interstellar, like just to name a few. He's absolutely phenomenal. He writes a ton of it. He always partners up with Hans Zimmer, who's like the, one of the best composers in the world. And they put out these epic movies that are complete mind twisters and I, I love him for it. So in terms of which director I associate with, I'd, I'm gonna go with director for now is Christopher Nolan because he's able to bring so many ancient and timeless concepts into his work. When I'm watching his movies, I can find concepts from Stoicism, Vedic times. I'm finding so many hidden messages across the way. And I love that because that's how I think as a content creator. How can I hide messages, right? It's the, it's the medicine in the suite. And when I'm watching Christopher Nolan, I'm noticing he's making so many powerful points about character, making so many powerful points about personality, about responsibility without us even knowing. And I'm one of those geeks who will like go and research a movie after watching it and try and find all the hidden plot twists that I miss and then go watch it back. How many of you have seen The Prestige? Okay, so The Prestige is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm glad I'm in a room of people who've seen it because I'm usually in a room of people who've not seen it. Uh, and probably not a, uh, a popular role, but I'd probably say I identify most with Christian Bale's role in The Prestige. But the thing I identify with Krishna Bale about in that role is the level of sacrifice it took to be the best at his art. So for those of you who haven't seen The Prestige, go and watch it. I won't, you know, no, uh, no, no spoiler alert, I'm not going to ruin it for you. For those of you who've seen it, you know what he does. He goes to the greatest extents to master his art. He works diligently day and night just to master his art, where you look at Hugh Jackman's character, and all he wants is fame and the result. 
and you see the difference between the two characters. Hugh Jackman has all the magic and has all the charisma, but he doesn't have the actual talent. And you see Christian Bale, all he has is the sacrifice, the hard work that's needed, the diligence and the focus to make it happen. And through that, he gives up a lot. And so that role of Christian Bale and that movie inspires so much of me. I also really love magic, so that helps. Uh, but yeah, that would be the role that really inspires me. I want to, just a quick follow-up. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Garth Bale with, with better perception. I'm not. So I've been studying, so perception is obviously what we see in front of us, yep. right? Um, and better perception is how we kind of, what I understand is how we view other people viewing us. It's right. kind of like, and, and to relate it to a character, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Seinfeld. Yep. Okay, so I, I, I look at uh, George Costanza as the characterization of meta perception. In other words, he's so worried about what people think of him that he's willing to lie about what he does for a living, who he's dated, where he lives, and he lives in this world of worrying about why people like him instead of living in the present. And there's this one scene, uh, if we're going to go to teaching, where he's with George, I mean, he's with Jerry. And they get done with a double date, and he asked Jerry if Jerry's girlfriend liked him. And he's like, yeah, she liked him. He goes, wait, you hesitated. He's like, she didn't like him. He's like, no, she liked him. He's like, no, you hesitated. She didn't like me. He goes, okay, she didn't like me. So basically, he was so worried about somebody else liking him, then he's like, goes into, why did she like me? So he spends all this time, and I feel like that is something in our culture, especially with social media, that we're so worried about how other people are looking at us and yeah. what they're thinking, and we're in their heads rather than being. Yeah. So if you could just speak to that. Yeah, definitely. So I've heard that from a writer called Charles Cooley in the 1900s, I think 1890, and he refers to that as the looking glass self. It's from Cooley, and he said that, today the biggest challenge is, I'm not what I think I am, I'm not what you think I am, I am what I think you think I am. Right, so let that blow your mind for a moment. So he said, the challenge today is, I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Which means we live in a perception of a perception of ourself. Which means if I think Chris thinks I'm a nice guy, then I feel like a nice guy. But if I think Laurie thinks that I'm a loser, then I feel like a loser. And I'm basing my perception based on how I think other people think about me. Which is so messed up. Right? And that's literally like inception on like two levels. It's like, first of all, you're not even sure that person feels that way. And they're not even sure that you're sure that you even know what they're talking about. And so we get lost in that. And that's why I think it's so important to remove ourselves from defining how we feel about ourselves. That's why I said earlier that happiness is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Happiness is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Because when you're by yourself, you've got no one to validate you anymore. And so when we walk out of the house, we're always like, do I look good in this to someone else? Ask yourself, do I look good in this? Because you could end up wearing something that you didn't like because someone else liked it. And then at the end of the night, you're like, oh, I wish you didn't tell me to wear that. And imagine you wore that mask for your whole life. Imagine you wore that career for your whole life. Imagine you wore that purpose for your whole life and at the end of your life you look back and go, wow, I just did all of that because 10 people thought it was amazing. And unfortunately that's normal for a lot of our lives. I can definitely say it was normal for a lot of my life. When I decided to be a monk, that's when I broke the cycle. 
because I wasn't doing that for anyone else apart from me because no one else thought it was cool apart from me. So I know I said last question. I just wanted to check with my team real quick and my wife. Um, did you guys have any questions that you wanted? Okay. <laughs> I, I, know, I know I always check with my wife. Mm -hmm. so, so Absolutely. All right, my man, you crushed it, number one. Thank, Thank you for you, serving. Man. Thank you. One of our favorite things to do is to always let you know what we learned um, oh, I love that. from what you spoke. So rapid fire takeaways. Uh, let's let Jay know what some of our takeaways are. Oh, I love were. that. That's so and cool. You can just kind of put your hand up and, and shout something and I'll, re I'll repeat it. And if you feel like saying something better than I said and pretend that you heard it from me, say it. Like, go for it. All the things. All the things. Well, that sums it up right there. Who else? I love the idea of writing when you get a big decision. Write the options and go over your intention for each one. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yep. So write the intention of what of why you might say yes to it. I love that. What else? Always choosing love. Always choosing love. Totally. Yep. Scott. You're getting crystal clear with your gratitude. Taste, smell, feel. Yeah, embody it. Exact moment of gratitude. For sure. For sure. That took my gratitude practice to a whole new level hearing that. Right? Because well, I just make a list. Like, oh, I'm grateful for waffles and laying across my legs. I'm grateful for Lorian. Right? So that, that changed the game for me. Uh, Brooks. Don't judge the moment. And we can't be everything. And that's okay. Yes. I love it. Well, thank you, Lynn. I like the cell phone space, but my kids are going to be pissed. <laughs> yeah. But what an awesome opportunity for you to lead by example for them. I love that. I know we're going to work on that too. I mean, I am, because Lori already wants to. <laughs> <laughs> Let the voice of your intuition be the loudest voice. Let the voice of your intuition be the loudest voice you hear. I love that. Who else? Every failure has feedback in it. Yeah, every failure has feedback. Mm -hmm. Melissa? I think it's the part about supporting your spouse through their own transformation and allowing mm -hmm. them to have it. That was awesome, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks, man. Uh, Joel, is this you? I was just agreeing with that yes part about the spouse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did I miss anybody? Don't measure yourself based on the room Don't measure yourself based on the room These are good takeaways. Yeah, this anybody is amazing. Else? You guys are great listeners. Um, don't, everybody goes at a different pace. Which yes. is, then you can just let them be on their journey. And also just the confirmation of why you're so clear. Like you meditate to hear yourself for mm. that long. Mm. So sometimes when I can't hear myself, it's because I'm doing five to ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. Which is not bad, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, yeah. but deeper. Yeah. Everybody goes at a different pace and meditate longer? Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the thing about um, just always, if you want to be good at something at, at certain moments, you have to practice it in the hard moments. Mm. Right? Yes. So yes. like gratitude, uh -huh. patience, patience, Presence. not judging, like you mm. need to practice it when that guy cuts you off and yeah. you'll be patient other times. Yeah, so that's, that's awesome. Thank you, man. Love it, love it. Did I miss anybody? Just hearing how diverse your life has been and you're still so young. As a young man, I often think, you know, I'm, I'm going this way. If I stop doing this for a year, I'm, I'm done. But <laughs> yeah. it's just so encouraging to hear that you've done so many different things and how you've gone from literally this side all the way to this side and back and forth and it's, it's just so beautiful. Totally, man. If you want to be present later, be present now. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Anyone else? All right, good takeaways, guys. Yeah, you guys said it way. You said it way better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Take notes. Awesome questions. You guys awesome, awesome takeaways. Yeah. Amazing value. Thank you so much. You know, how can we serve you? Is there anything way that we can serve you? This is beautiful. I just think the best way we can all serve is by you taking all of these principles and applying them into your life. 
passing them on to others. You're all coaches, teachers, guides, you know, business creators, whatever you do, like infuse your world with that. Because that means we're gonna have lots more people in the world that are living off of this. And that's the best thing we can do is just anything that you took away, please pass it on to just one person, 10 people, 100 people, a million people on social media, whatever it is, just pass it on because I just wanna see this like completely cascade across the whole world. And I wanna take this moment to say a huge thank to Chris and Laurie as well, like your community is amazing. Uh, thank you for all the heartfelt questions. It was nice to sit in a room where we could speak about the depths of things. I'm sure we could have spoken about things like social media and stuff like for hours, but this is just so much more powerful. And uh, it's a testament to you, Chris. Uh, thank you for inviting me here and thank you for the wonderful introduction. I was so touched. And I'm just genuinely grateful for you being a friend in my life too, man. So Likewise. thank you so much. Bro. Likewise, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of On Purpose. It means so much to me. I really, really hope that you like this new style of episode. It was just something I wanted to try out and experiment with because I love getting you into my personal life. I want you to hear about what I talk about behind the scenes and at these events. I'd love to hear your feedback. I can't wait to see what you're learning because I'm going to share a lot more of those because I want you to get access to understand different topics from different points of view. And actually, I probably answered a lot of questions that many of you have as well. And I'm sure you could hear yourself in those people. So anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I can't wait for you to hear this one next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.